Welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Katie. And I'm your host, Rory. We got a creepy Rory today. We get a creepy Rory today. That's what we're going to call all your uh, episodes. Yeah, because today we're doing something fun, a little different. Uh, Katie needed a couple days off, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going through finals. She has finals, online finals. Basically, my teacher watches a video of me taking a test. Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Sounds fun for the teacher. Yeah. What's our subject for the episode today, Rory? This week we're going to be doing a little bit, just a little short episode on uh, Alistair Crowley. Alistair Cr- Crowley? Is it Crowley? It's Crowley, Crowley. yeah. I think, what? Crowley Ozzy Osbourne like says Crowley. Oh, he's Ozzy. He Mr. Say Crowley. Or does he say, Mr. Crowley? Maybe. See. So if you had to just sum everything up in one one brief phrase to describe his life what would it be sad he oh. had a pretty sad life like uh i i see it near the end i guess but no for the most part his life is pretty much uh a lot of death a, a lot of sad shit and a lot of him turning into kind of a, a a strange person because of that like he had a fairly sad life i feel like there's people that have similarly sad lives and don't have people shit in their mouths. Hey, hey, don't get too far ahead of yeah, it. Don't give away my favorite parts. Yeah, I mean, he was, but even even now, like, is that considered to be so sexually crazy? Like, we yes. joke about it all the time, but it's in this modern <laughs> We culture, joke about it. We don't actually we joke shit about in each it. other's mouths. I know, but if somebody was like, yeah, I like eating dookie, yeah, I guess that is really weird. <laughs> yeah, mind. don't try to normalize that. I'm not going to normalize that. I'm sorry, but if that's your fetish... Eating dookie. Get some help because that's genuinely bad for you and you need to see a doctor. Yeah, you shouldn't eat anybody's poop. And where did you get your uh, research this week, Rory? Uh, actually, a lot of places. Katie has a couple books. I have a couple books. But the main uh, source is Do What Thou Wilt, A Life of Aleister Crowley by Lawrence Sutton. And it is long and very comprehensive. So I skipped over a lot near the end and a lot in, in between because this guy basically dictates Aleister Crowley's life every day from his journal entries to all of the little nuances that happen to him and stuff like that. And it is way, way too much for just a quick fun episode. So he, they basically made it, he was like basically making a 30 for 30 on him. Oh yeah. I mean, this could have been three, four episodes long, but just based off this book and we could go through every day, every weird little occult saying he created. But yeah, this guy went crazy with the research. I mean, it's like an 800 page book on the life of Aleister Crowley or Crowley. God, I gotta get better at that. Well, when did he start following him? What do you mean? Like when did he start uh, notating everything he did? Was it when he was a preacher's son or later in life when he was a sex wizard of Sicily? It was a little bit later in life. Basically, as a magician, he was required to basically keep track of every invocation, every spell, every ritual that he worked. He kept track of it. Uh, he wrote diaries on what was supposed to be done. Cause, I mean, this is before the internet. This is before anything. This is like the early 1900s when most of his weird shit took place. But he kept very comprehensive logs of basically his life every day up to a certain point. And he was a writer, right? Yeah, he was a writer. He was a poet. He was a philosopher. I mean, he was so much more than just a freaky sex wizard. Well, on that note, Rory, why don't you kick us off? Edward Alexander Crowley was born on October 12, 1875, in Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, an upper-middle-class shopping town located in the center of England. His parents were fairly well-to-do business owners. Edward Crowley, Alistair's father, was raised a Quaker but later joined with a sect of evangelical fundamentalists, often preaching across numerous cities through England. 
with the Bible being his literal rhetoric, saying that, you know, the Bible is literal. That's how we have to take it. That's how we have to live our lives by it. There are no mistakes in it. And he would do that with his son, Edward Alexander. His mother, Emily, was born to a wealthy family and married into Edward's fundamentalism. Was she a good cook? You know, I don't know. Did he have multiple wives? Who? His father? Yeah. No. Edward. Just Emily. Every morning she'd call out, Have an omelette! That's, yep. Just realized we were in England. That's Irish, though. Nah. When Alistair was five years old, his young baby sister died, and the family moved to Red Hill, Surrey to get away from the tragedy. It was there that Alistair attended evangelical schools, and at 12 years old, Alistair's father dies of cancer. It's actually tongue cancer. It's kind of fucked up. He went preaching everywhere, and guess what? He got tongue cancer. Wow, God must have forgotten yeah. about that part. Like, how do you get tongue cancer? You know, just just like any other cancer. He probably smoked. Lots of people get tongue cancer from smoking. Pipe tobacco, probably. But being a Quaker <laughs> and then fundamentalist, I don't know. But his family was Berbers, so... That's the thing, though. Back then, it wasn't like... It wasn't. Oh, yeah. Was, everybody smoked, so it was Quaker weird if you didn't. And they were basically kind of upper middle class, like pretty up class family, so... Well, that's why I asked about the... And after his father's death, he leaves uh, young Edward Alexander a portion of his estate. Now, being on the, dis the cusp of disgusting male puberty, um, like all young boys, boys, he starts to misbehave and uh, starts being punished harshly by the headmaster of his school, a reverend by the name of Champney. Is it because he had a boner? Like, just walk around school with a boner? No, I mean, he would do kind of fucked up things like run off, uh, talk back, uh, start questioning the teachers, things like that. But it just, so that was his, normal stuff? Yeah, but his father died. But, you know, he was hit in puberty, so he also really just kind of came into his own. Champney's name sucks. Yeah, he does. Throw that out there. It's a bad name. Young Edward Alexander was not the ideal son after his father's death, and his mother's relationship changed dramatically. Never having the strongest foundation in the first place, his mother started calling him the Beast, and suppressed most of her mothering instinct and allowed Alistair to be punished slash tortured by Reverend Champney. She didn't have to suppress much in the way of motherly instincts. He greatly loved his father and, like, basically worshipped him. Well, he didn't worship her, and that's why she called him the Beast. Probably. Edward would not be acknowledged by students and teachers for days. He'd be fed only bread and water, and would be isolated on the playground away from any meaningful human contact. And this basically happened at home and at school. Now, Alistair, in this time, developed a kidney disease, which was further compounded by his bullies punching him in the kidneys after they learned that he was sick. And that's the type of shit that can cause you to pee blood. It is. But he was also had some other problem with his kidney, like full-on kidney disease, and he had to get it treated, so he left after school after he was sick. But little did his kidneys know they were in for so much more. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that can actually make mental disorders worse, like can infections it? and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So if he had some sort of oppositional defiant disorder that would expound it interesting that's what, why you're here katie now fortunately he was removed from the school unfortunately the da damage was already done and alistair continued at new schools but was just as miserable eventually his mother ends up getting him tutors at home and they were religious fundamentalists at this point he starts getting a little weird and starts getting his kicks from pointing out the flaws in the bible and developing a very contrarian stubborn personality and see why you appreciate Mr. Crowley. Yeah, he was definitely like called out every biblical problem in the Bible because he knew it back and forth and said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. If you take it in the literal word, it doesn't make sense. And he loved doing it. It made him, it gave him a little 12-year-old chubby. 
And weirdly, it's at this time Alistair or young Edward Alexander discovers slapping the slug and says, it's a sin worth sinning. And I applied myself with vigor to its practice. Gross. And then uh, after that, he discovers sex with his mother's maid, which he has sex in their home in his bed. And then uh, evolved into paying prostitutes for all forms of weird depravity that he supposedly was into from a young age. And uh, that lands him in Gonorrheaville. <laughs> now, aside from slapping the, sl- slapping the slug, which I guess we all get what you're meaning there. I was going to say it seemed pretty normal, just normal rebellious teenage stuff. But then the last part about taking the maid to the sausage wagon. Yeah, that's really confusing. He was 12? No, I think at this time he's probably close to 15. Still too young. Way too young. Well, I guess not back then. Well, way too young and also the fact that he had money and he went and paid for prostitutes afterwards. I mean... 15-ish, paying for prostitutes? Yeah. I don't think it's really... You know, creepy to bang the maid. It might be creepy for the maid. I mean, she was like three times his age. Was she like a sexy maid? Oh, they don't say. Had to be, right? Not necessarily. I mean, the man has the sex drive of the most just astronomical proportions of any person on the planet. Boned an ugly maid when he was 15. Yeah, it didn't matter. He boned the maid. She looks like Consuela from Family Guy. Probably. At 20 years old, right before attending Trinity College in Cambridge... We see the birth of Alistair Crowley. Edward Alexander Crowley no longer exists. He decides that in order to go on the first step in the path to fame or infamy, in his case, he needed to change his name to something more alliterative. Edward Alexander Crowley, no one wanted to know, but Alistair Crowley, that's an interesting name. What does it mean? Alistair is actually Gaelic for Alexander, so it's not really much different. It kind of fulfills the requirement for him because of the way his it lines up and his name sounds when you say it. I guess technically for him it filled the requirement, but he didn't technically even change his name. So the joke's kind of on him because he fucked this whole thing up right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, he didn't really, but it it was more of a romantic idea of himself because it's an ancient Gaelic and he has this lineage or whatever. If he met an ancient Gaelic person, they're going to be like, hey, Alexander. And he's like, no. But they would call him Alistair. Yeah, see what I'm saying. Okay. Well, he majored in philosophy and developed a love for mountaineering, writing poetry, and chess. It was also around this time that Alistair has his weird sexual awakening. He set on a trip to Sweden, Alistair discovers his love to push the envelope and has what at the time was considered abhorrent homosexual experiences. So that's what pushing the envelope means. Back in the day, yeah, when you're trying to push the limits of everything that's considered good and sacred, it's one of those ways that you can easily, I guess... Oh, I thought it was push like past here limitations code when you're at the bar. Hey, buddy, you like pushing the envelope? So was this his way of basically saying fuck the Bible? I mean, it, it's part of it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I say I appreciate the Bible, but I'm not going to go that far. It's more along lines of rebelling against everything that people considered good and considered right and were punishable offenses because sin at this point to him is. It, it, it's a concept that he kind of doesn't buy into. It's uh, he almost at this point has become uh, like a Gnostic. Like he, he, he believes that maybe there are other powers in the world that are greater than God and things like that. So at this point, he's just trying to kind of rebel against everything that's good. So he's not technically a homosexual, but he's doing it. No, he's bisexual. He enjoys he he enjoys the gratification it comes from getting banged out by a dude. Let me help you out of your chair, Grandma. And upon his return to Cambridge, he develops a relationship with the head of the drama department, 
which eventually do ends due to Alistair's obsession with Western esotericism, which is basically just witchcraft and craft from the Bible and lost word of ritual and things like that. A man or a woman? It's a man. Okay. That's literally the nerdiest shit I've ever heard to end a relationship. They couldn't agree on it or what? No, they frankly didn't care about it at all. And it was Alistair's obsession at this point. He started actually believing in magic and things along those lines, which he'd had a little bit of thought about before. But this is really where it comes to the forefront through his studies of philosophy. So he was just getting really obnoxious with it, probably. Oh, I guarantee it. No one wanted to be around him. I guarantee it. He'd start chanting probably weird things <laughs> at the random times at night and shit like Just that. hear it coming from under his door. They're like, oh my God, go to bed. Alexander! He's like, don't call me that. Yeah, exactly. Wait, would be like, Eddie. Don't call me that. Edward Alexander, come to bed. I don't know. I can't. Nope, I refuse. Okay, so anyway, uh, Alistair eventually leaves school. Uh, having inherited some money, he has his life funded and decides to dedicate himself to his passions. One being the study of the occult. Sounds like the story of a Netflix special on Eric Trump. <laughs> now, this time there are two books that uh, heavily influence... Oh, and the other one, it's it's mountaineering. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, he, he's all nerdy for climbing, climbing things. <laughs> <laughs> These days he would just be into parkour. Basically, I mean, he got a little fat for parkour in the end, but yeah, no, he would be into stuff like that. Um, now, at this point, two books would heavily influence Alistair. A.E. Waits, the Book of Black Magic, which from what I saw was a bunch of conjurations followed by the author writing about pagan beliefs and how they are valid beliefs and should be followed. And The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary, which was actually recommended to Crowley by A.E. Waits himself. And it was at this point uh, Crowley was introduced to, to some members from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In layman's terms, a cult where the members pee on each other? Something like that. I mean, these guys believed that they were magicians and the founder of the order believed he could talk to like the secret gods or whatever they called them and he or the secret chiefs and he could pass down magic information from them including conjurations uh, spell castings grimoires and things like that yeah they were real nerdy they're a bunch of like poets and nerds and people who thought themselves intellectuals but needed this weird escape into paganism to basically counteract all the things that were happening around they just, them they'd just be vegans these days some of them were actually vegetarians and shit so there's that and this is magic with a k this right? is magic with a k legitimate this is magic? legitimate magic the study of ancient ritual and bullshit like that <laughs> the real magic i mean these guys give each other nerdy names they they hung out all the time and practiced different forms of meditation and astral projection and eventually uh Alistair, he, he wants to rise through the ranks quickly, but he discovers the secret of uh, ritual sex magic and wow. how letting yourself go and allowing yourself to basically lose all ego brings you to the next level of magic dumb in this, I guess. <laughs> but so was, was this like masturbation sigils and whatnot? Oh, yeah, definitely. Kind of sex oh, yeah, magic? yeah, yeah. So I, I guess at one point in time in one of his journals, they find a listing of all of his rituals. And everyone was like, oh, he was such this weird sex freak. He fucked all the time. But at this point, he wasn't really. So like. Six, no, because nerds don't get laid yeah, like that. So, so like <laughs> like every it was like 11 were with another person, 11 encounter, uh, encounters and rituals were done with another person. And uh, like 87 were done 
solo all by himself <laughs> yeah where he just, just jerked himself off i feel like every time he met someone he introduced himself he's like oh uh, yeah my name is alistair but you can call me the masturbating dragon yeah like, dude, for sure like my no, magic like, comes. i know where my magic comes from if you catch my drift <laughs> alistair and studied applied himself and applied himself to his ritual magic and he really wanted to meet the secret chiefs so he went to the head of the group samuel mcgregor mathers and actually mcgregor mathers mr mathers there um he <laughs> really eliminate yeah he went and uh, actually believed Alistair knew what he was talking about after his discovery of ritual sex magic and how it all worked and how he could commune with the uh, secret gods and things like that through study of grimoires. So that's and all what the secret chiefs was, is the gods? Basically something like that. They were, they were the people that issued forth the orders for the Hermetic Order of Golden Dawn through this Mathers dude. He gets initiated, uh, he gets denied initiation by the other abductee minor the other rulers of the Golden Dawn. Um, he gets denied getting an order of first class. And so Crowley's friend, the founder of the organization, Samuel McGregor Mathers, actually goes ahead and says, yeah, we're going to go ahead and allow you in. And that creates a huge rift in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And this is by this time, it was somewhere near the year 1900. And Alistair had bought his little house, he goes ahead and moves into it with a couple of the people he knows from the Golden Dawn, and that's how he gets introduced to it. But he basically, his addition to this society is what created the rift between everyone else in it and the, one of the founders. So he's a homewrecker. Oh, yeah. I mean, and to him, it didn't even pan out to what he wanted to. And so it's around 1900, and he heads down Old Mexico Way, and he's trying to develop his invocational magic skills. Um, and he there starts studying this own Enochian magic style, which is basically ritual invocations of demons and things like that. With like ayahuasca or something? There were drug use, but mostly at this time it was hashish and stuff like that. But uh, So, you know, he's down there in Mexico climbing mountains, having a good old time. He has a mistress down there that he's really enjoying. So <laughs> he sticks around for a little bit. He's married? No, not at this time. But, she wouldn't be a mistress. Um, just at that time, any woman you were sleeping with, Side that was check. not your, yeah, it's basically your mistress. You're okay. not married to her. I mean, I think the definition of a mistress is someone that you're not married to, but are having carnal relations with. So at this time, he says he becomes initiated into the Freemasons and steals some of their secrets. And after that, he heads to San Francisco, Japan, Hong Kong, and eventually stops in Sri Lanka to hang out with his old friend, Alan. Where he'd met at Cambridge. Now Alan was studying Eastern religion to eventually become a Buddhist monk. You have to go to college for that? No, but you do have to spend time studying in uh, places like Sri Lanka and a temple and things like that before you can go become a monk. So all the travels were related to work that he was doing for the Freemasons, or...? No, he was just traveling to have a good time. He had money. He had the means. He wanted to see the world and practice different magics. Um, he wanted to try and gain some followers or some friends in America to help him with mountaineering and things like that. So he was so. a fucking weird, creepy trust fund baby. Yeah, basically. So are they not offended that he's an English guy coming over trying to be a monk? Is that not like... I mean, I guess at this point they're not offended by it because this happens throughout history quite a bit, I guess. Okay, weird. From Sri Lanka, Crowley heads to India, where he learns yoga and studies uh, Indian astrology. It has a very hard-to-pronounce name. I'm not even going to try it. He's really living his best life, like a Taylor Swift song or something. 
I don't know. There's a lot more breakups in a Taylor Swift song. Maybe a Miley Cyrus song, right? Yeah. Party in the... Party in the U.S. or party... Party in, in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. In India. So did he just give up masturbating all the time to learn yoga? Because he put his hands I, up. I think part of his teaching was uh, to learn how to masturbate in different positions. Was it that weird? <laughs> no hands, mom. Yeah, that weird kind of yoga where you learn how to ejaculate without touching yourself. I'm assuming so, but I, I actually have no idea. But kind of want to. If that's a real thing, it, yeah, if that's a real thing. <laughs> it honestly sounds like something he'd be into. It is for Who women. Wouldn't? I don't know if men can do it. Who wouldn't be into that? You're just sitting in a meeting and you're bored. <laughs> yeah, you get there just by thinking no, just, I'm good boss. about murdering your boss or something. It just seems strange that you would be like super into ritual sex magic and be like, I do yoga now. Well, it was part of another, uh, it's part of that uh, Indian astrology thing he was doing, the thing I can't pronounce his name of. Okay, so. it So yoga is actually part of it to actually help center yourself and things like that, so. It was one of more of a meditation for him than it was actually like a way to further his ritual magic. And as we're gonna learn down the down the road a bit here, he was definitely into the downward facing dog. And it's from there he decides to head home. Now his home is the Bullskin House in Scotland. It's actually right on uh, Loch Ness. So some people believe that the Loch Ness monster is actually raised by Alistair Crowley and is a demon that roams the lake. I there, hope so. There's a little belief of that, but yeah. So Bullskin House was in itself had a long history, but its most notable times came under the ownership of Alistair Crowley. It was here that Crowley read, founder of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Samuel Little Mathers, the Book of Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage. That is a mouthful and a half. Yeah, it is. God, why do they name things so stupid? Well, I mean, if you listen to their chants and all their bullshit, it's pretty evident, evident that they ramble. Yeah, so, well, this is just basically a grimoire of spells translated by Mathers, that allowed the user to contact their guardian spirit, a ritual that included six months abstaining, abstaining from alcohol, sex, and daily cleansings. What kind of cleansings? You're just cleaning yourself. Oh, like taking a bath? Yeah. It wasn't like injecting yourself with Lysol. So now he's going from sex magic to yoga to abstaining from sex? Well, this is actually him to get on another level where he can actually communicate with the spirit that's sent to protect him. It's a Kabbalistic style. It's abramendolin is actually Abraham, which is basically a grimoire of Abraham that told you how to contact the spirits that would allow you to have guardianship through the rest of your days. Like, it's crazy nerdy. It's a crazy undertaking that people believe that he shouldn't have even attempted it at this time. Even though he had those months to focus, he wasn't in the right headspace and all sorts of things. It's like lint on crack. Basically. Now, numerous interruptions caused the calling to go awry including into local folklore that says a butcher interrupted Crowley to get his meat order. He felt a terrible breeze through the house when Crowley answered the door, and when he got back to the shop to cut the orders, he felt the same chill while cutting Alistair's meat order. And guess what happened? It slipped, his knife slipped, and it took off the tips of four of his fingers. Sounds like he's just paranoid. Could be that. There is a lot of paranoia creeping through this story, I feel. And then there's another one that states that at this particular time in the summoning, uh, the mage who is doing it summons 12 demons to bear witness and are sealed within the will of the mage. So he has 12 demons there during this time that he is supposed to be holding within the parameters of his will to bear witness to his guardian spirit, meeting him, knowing that he is then protected from their evils by this guardian spirit. Well, at this time, Crowley was called off to Paris, and people believe that dark shadows and bad things 
permeate the bullskin house from now on. Like they're just easily accepted? Are they, 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 they go there for... It's just a place they're attracted to? No, he invited he them invited in. He invited them in. Oh, they're still there. He yeah, never made them saying. go away. And I mean... So it's haunted. Yeah, so it dro- actually a uh, one of the house women, uh, one of the housemaids or whatever, disappeared. No one knows what happened. And they believe that a demon took her. And one of the things is... One of the other things is... One of the workers that had to work on the house was so accosted by dark spirits and things that it drove him fucking insane. And he had to leave. Like, he couldn't, he just couldn't do it anymore. He heard voices. He heard all sorts of scary shit. So he left. I am more inclined to believe that he was already leaning towards some kind of psychosis. The stuff you don't fuck with. You don't fuck with dark shit like that. Especially when you're a half-assed wizard magician who has just found out that through his own sexual depravity, he can summon demons and you have no intention so he to thinks, fix yeah. it once you invite them yeah. in somewhere yeah he, he was well past his abilities at this point he even admits it in part of his writings that he wished he hadn't undertaken it at this point because he tries it like three more times so he just ups and leaves like he has no issue he regrets it later but he has no issue just being like okay i'll just leave the demons here and deal with it no he was dealing with some i can't remember what he exactly he was dealing with in paris but he was starting to go he, – he does this a lot where he, when he gets cooped up in one place too long, he has to go to a friendly spot that he knows in order to regain his composure and come back to himself. So he so. kind of just made the fucking demons go away first and then, like, dealt with it emotionally? Well, I feel like the demons stick around for a little bit even if you're not – like, because it's in a certain stages of this gigantic ritual that he's accomplishing this. And at this point, he's just kind of like, fuck it, too many interruptions, I can't focus, I need to get out of here and leaves. Not knowing that they wouldn't just disappear on his will or not really caring, I, I couldn't say. It's a long trip to get there. They're not just going to get there and bounce right away. Right. He basically leaves and the leaves the Bullskin house unattended except for, you know, a couple workers and things like that. Now, upon his return in 1903, he's basically been hanging out in Paris, having sex with numerous people, men and women, married women, things like that. Smoking long, skinny cigarettes. Basically. Do you think he was just randomly always like, did I forget something? Did I forget? What did I forget? <laughs> I wanted to do house. before I There's left. Something did I leave the stove on? I iron is plugged in. Oh, I'll figure it out later. Hope that place burns to the ground. But upon his return in 1903, where he lived a pretty hedonistic lifestyle in Paris for a few years, when in Paris, he comes back and he marries his friend Gerald's sister, uh, Rose Edith Kelly, to keep her from a arranged marriage with someone she basically didn't like. And that's when they go on their honeymoon honeymoon to Cairo, Egypt, where the next stage in Crowley's evolution begins. He was really committing to the golden shower thing right there. Well, at this point, he's broken off from the golden showers. Or the golden dawn. Are you sure? Yeah. Because he just married a lady named R. Kelly. <laughs> Do you th- think that she wishes she would have married the guy she didn't like? Because she doesn't like him even more. Oh, eventually. I will, uh, we'll get into that. Because he basically uses, there, there at one point in time, he does feel some sort of love to her, but he realizes that he's not his quote unquote scarlet woman that's to bear his next magical child into the world and help him rip forth the age uh, or the aeon of Horus or whatever he was thinking at the time. You can only know that someone's your scarlet woman if they're willing to shit in your mouth. Basically, yeah. And she wasn't? 
I don't think so. I mean, they were they kind of did some sex shit that was a little weird, but it was never not that weird. She, she was not classy. She was I, more yeah. I feel like she still he would ask her to do some of the stuff, and she was like, "Damn, I should have married Tom." Yeah, my life would have been so much better. Tom, like missionary. They're in Cairo, and uh, in a ritual in one of the great pyramids of Giza, Alistair Crowley and his new young wife Rose performed a summoning from a grimoire that Crowley had brought with him. And you, and they use sex magic in their invocation inside the Egyptian thing. What are those called? Pyramid. pyramid. Yeah. Inside the pyramid. Yeah. They, so they boned it out in the pyramid. They boned it out with in some weird way that they had called upon a spirit to watch and help lend credence to him as a magician. And I, okay, so here's the thing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put my opinion in here in here for a second. Um, I don't think that Crowley actually had any real powers or really truly believed that he had powers, but I, I think he at this time learns a great deal in the power of perception and how he can put his bullshit and put his own thoughts into someone's head because just from having sex in the pyramid, basically, I mean, but at this point, the, the next parts what actually makes me say this. So shortly after their foray into ancient ritual, Rose started having hallucinations hearing things basically from another world or a disembodied voice telling crowley that the god horus was waiting and that the equinox of the gods is upon us whereupon rose and crowley go to a museum and under exhibit 666 rose points out an image of horus accepting sacrifice now this to crowley who is a bit of a egyptophile he starts testing her with other things and she answers all of the answers correctly, leading him to believe that, you know, she's actually communicating with a higher being, basically one of the secret chiefs. And Horace is like the the tip top, right? He's basically Jesus, what Jesus is to us. Kind of, yeah. He's he's the bringer of light and things like that. So yeah, he, he's basically the tip top of the pyramid. Like if you wanted to get in contact with an Egyptian god, it would be this one? Basically, yeah. And Horace... He wants to come. He doesn't like being made to wait. This is true. Now, whether or not this story is 100% true, I, I feel like it's really up for my up for debate. In my opinion, it's a way for Crowley to grow his mythos and basically have a story to tell that later proves that he is this magician and this is what he has done and this is what he has been told and things like that. Because it seems too perfect that she just like showed up under this... like the 666 and it's yeah. just like a real good story to back everything he's trying to like oh say. yeah for sure is that where that number came from uh I it's from the bible 660 well 666 is technically the number of the beast from the bible um i've never read the bible so. well yeah it's actually a biblical reference to in revelations i believe that talks about the great beast satan who controls the earth after seven years of battle or whatever i can't remember It'd be so awesome if Aleister Crowley was the quote-unquote Antichrist and, like, Armageddon already happened and we didn't even notice it. He was... I would request another Antichrist yeah, if he was a, it, because that's lame as fuck. Yeah, he's kind of a lame fuck. Okay. He's just he's, obsessed with sex. He's, he's, just like, a, he's just a nerd that discovered a way to get girls to have sex with him. And dudes. He just wanted to have sex and get gross and devoted his life to a practice that, while interesting, I don't have any real belief or faith in. So on April 8th, 9th, and 10th, 
at the same time every day, I believe it was 12 to 1 p.m., Crowley was addressed by a disembodied voice. And this was the voice of the messenger of Horus. And he was to dictate the book of the law, and which became the foundation for Thelema, his practice. So he just made himself very important? Oh, yeah. No, he, he is number one importante at this point. I'm noticing a pretty hard correlation to other, like, like Joseph Smith, for example, oh, where what? it's like, I am creating this. I am dictated from God. So far, in, in my opinion, he is Rasputin, L. Ron Hubbard, and John Smith all kind of plopped jo- into Joseph one. Smith? Yeah, Joseph Smith. John Smith, Bank, Pocahontas. Yeah, sorry. So he's all sort of, he's those three kind of rolled up into one little dumpy looking dude. <laughs> and he was dumpy. He was a bit dumpy. And with this came the saying, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. Now, Thelema basically boils down to seeking your true power while shedding your ego. That's, that's basically his practice. That's ironic. Yeah, right? It, it's, it's really weird. He was pretty self-absorbed. It, it, it kind of seems like, like if you take it directly, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. It kind of is just implying that you make your own law based on what's like feels best for you is that accurate ish yeah that's accurate ish like, i mean make your own law that's basically levey and satanism that yeah that's that's a little later on i mean with anton levey though it, it, he poked fun at it yeah he, i mean he his kind was of, a joke his was yeah directed at christians yeah his was just a joke whereas alistair believes he's the real deal cock of the walk this is his thing like he he, he believes that he is the all power in this and that his rituals have worked he knows what's doing what he's doing and all sorts of other shit but it's basically a recurring theme in basically not Christians is that because the Bible tells you what to do. So if you want to be non-Christian, do what you want to do. Yeah. Say, fuck it. I'm not going to follow somebody else's writings. I'll follow my own. Yeah. You have to learn. You have to teach at your own. You have to learn at your own rate or some shit like that. Basically. That's why they're yeah. all so similar. Yeah. Just name your cock Satan and put in whatever you want. Sort of. Magicians help uh, accomplish the shedding of their ego and the showing of their true power through the use of rituals and ceremony in Thelema. And uh, after his awakening to his guardian guardian spirit and the invocation of Horus being successful, Crowley, quote-unquote successful, Crowley headed back to the Bolskin house to plan his next adventure. Did he notice the demons? No. (laughs) He walks back and he's like, ah, shit. He's like, I still can't remember Apparently, what I needed here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he didn't stop doing rituals at the house at this point. I mean, during the time before he leaves in the next part to go climb a mountain in the Himalayas that had never been accomplished before, before that time, he's still doing ritual magic with uh, Rose and things along that line. It's just who he is. So he's he's practicing his thoughts, but he kind of leaves Thelema behind a little bit and the Book of the Law a little bit behind. So she's still hear Horace speaking to her or was that like a short term no i believe that was just a short term thing she had no interest in any of this really okay he's just a really busy man he's got to keep everything moving put some stuff on the back burner move some things around and really get to the basis of his whole satanistic blah well at this point it's not satanistic i don't think it ever really was no it's it's not really it's basically it it's it's it follows the line of esotericism basically it, it it follows these rituals have been around for long before that we have. They have more basis in beliefs non-Christian and things like that. They're pagan rituals and things like that. Some of he them just actually made are, mainstream or well, he basically just built a little religion around these things. The use of rituals and things like that to accomplish goals and to get to your true true self. 
while shedding your ego at the same time, which he never really did. I mean, the dude was kind of, you know, had a very, very, very large ego and considered himself numero uno head, head fucker in charge. So he was a hypocrite, but he was a multitasker. For the most part. I mean, he, he did actually believe this for a long time. So Crowley had been into climbing mountains since his time at college, and he decides to climb Kachanjunga in the Himalayas. Now, this expedition would change his life for a few reasons. Um, it was really rough in the beginning, and after they uh, ascended a little bit, there were like five base camps that they had made along the way, and they were at number five when the people around him decided that he was reckless, and as a leader, he was not great. And so they decided to break off and head back to Camp 4. Alistair had already sent a couple uh, porters, guys that know the mountain. Basically, uh, they're not Sherpas, but they, they help carry gear and shit up the mountain. He he sent them back the day before and everything was fine. But at this time, it was it was kind of late. And due to the reason that of his leadership, uh, they just decided they wanted to go back to Camp 4. Now, it was about 530 at night. And Crowley wrote that he was really worried about the conditions and the ability of the group. Because one of his porter friends went with them, some person that he brought personally that he figured he could trust and things like that. He went with them to help. Now, they were tied together, but Crowley says that he saw it and they were really loose when it should be tight at all times to make sure that a slip doesn't take everybody down. Because a jerk on the Because the, the jerk loop can pull cause someone to fall, which will then cause a chain reaction. And that's basically what happened. One of the porters uh, took four of the others down. I mean, the two guys that disagreed with Crowley were leading the thing. They were English gentlemen. Or one, one was a Frenchman named like Grimbold. And uh, the other was an Englishman. And they were leading the thing down with these four porters. The four guys went down and caused an avalanche. And they were stuck. And they screamed, and Camp 5 was basically within eyesight of them. And they suffocated. The four porters in the mountain took them three days to dig them out. And Crowley had heard the screams and chose not to act in fear or, as he quoted, in the safety, but basically let these four dudes suffocate instead of going down and helping them. He could have been there shortly to help them, but he just sort of watched their bodies disappear under the white snow, and they died. I'd really like to go back and have an omelet. Yep. So the two that made it back uh, told the stories of what had happened and how Crowley was basically a piece of shit. And he got shunned from the mountaineering community. Like, they have no one in the world wanted anything to do with him after they heard this. They published it in magazines and shit like that. And so much that Crowley had to respond and told his side of the story, but it came off more like bullshit. And he seemed really to blame the two dudes that took them back down due to his not wanting to listen in. They were being hard-headed and shit like that. So that's just basically what he said, like, they didn't want to take my advice. Yeah, so basically. it's not my fault. No, he said it was their fault. They killed his friend, things like that. But I feel like his diary entry saying that conditions were really bad was an after-the-fact. Oh, for Watching sure. Watching the avalanche, and he was like, I better write this down. Well, actually, he, had, he said that he had, like, a prophetic dream about his friend Pache. Uh, Pache was the porter that went with him but he had a prophetic dream where he told uh told him that he wouldn't make it 10 minutes down the mountain but 15 minutes later well he proved him wrong technically dear diary like i proved it wrong he, well yeah because he, he said may prove my prophetic vision uh wrong 15 minutes later because he said he wouldn't make it 10 minutes down the mountain dear diary so solid erection in 1906 <laughs> uh we see crowley in india 
he's actually at this point waiting for his wife, who is heavily pregnant, uh, to join him. He's oh, no, actually, help. she's had the kid by now. I'm sorry. She had the kid right as he left for the mountain trip, and it took him six months to get back to India. So so the kid was already a few months old, probably? Yeah, I believe so. She's, he spends a lot of time in India. He spends a lot of time everywhere. I mean, he, he believes himself a worldly traveled man, man, and he really is. the world. Um, but he's in India waiting for his uh, wife to join him. After all the stress of the expedition, he just wanted to spend some time with his wife, Rose, and their daughter, Niet in Calcutta, where he could just relax. But it was kind of bad timing because at this time in Indian history, there's a bunch of rebellion against colonial oppressors, just like Crowley, who is an Englishman, and uh, tensions are high in the city where they are robbing, killing, and basically fighting their own form of Indian war for independence. Like Somalia in current day. Something like that. Crowley writes that one night on a stroll, he gets an unnerving feeling that he's being followed. He was. He was being followed, and he catches a glimpse of men in holy robes, and attempts they attempt to surround him. Now, he has a gun in his hand the whole time, and he shoots at one of the attackers. This creates a commotion, and he uses his invisibility magic to make his way to his friend's house, where he is safe. He said he didn't mean to do it. It just happened automatically after the stress of the situation. The invisibility he... magic was automatic? Yeah. Is that what he calls his gun? Yeah. He just points it at people, and he's like, I'm invisible. Oh, it actually had a name. I can't remember what type of gun with it, it was, but it, it has a really funny name, and you're kind of like, that's a weird gun. So is the gun actually what he uses to go invisible? No, the gun is what he shot to create a commotion that allowed him to slip into invisibility without even thinking about it. So is his invisibility more like a magic ring that makes you invisible to everyone except Sauron, or is it like a cloak that, when activated, hides you from Voldemort? I'm going to go ahead and say it's just him think, thinking that he's really sneaky going along like the walls like duh, 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 ah, and then like jumping around the corners and shit <laughs> with his own theme music. And yeah, just, all sorts of shit like that. Like Kronk. Like Kronk. Just, that's, that's all I see, but just like a satanic Kronk like <laughs> flopping around. But uh, unfortunately, this occurrence draws the attention of the police, and Crowley believes that he is a wanted man at this time. Firing your weapon will draw the police. Was he wanted, or he just thought he was? Um, I'm pretty sure he was. I mean, the police showed up uh, and looked for him, but uh, he's hiding out at his friend's house. The next day, he presents himself to a Scottish barrister at the embassy, and the guy basically says, keep quiet and hide out, or they may... Take matters in their own hand, their own hands, and kill an, an imperialist dog. Well, but he was Scottish, so it didn't sound quite like that. Yeah, it sounded a little more poetic, probably. But no one could understand it. Rose and Yet arrive in India, only to be greeted with Crowley asking which country they would like to go to, as he was a wanted man. Now he gave them a choice, I believe, between uh, I think it was Sri Lanka and China, and Rose at that point chooses China, and just they like start their Rose. yeah. Basically, they, they, they just start their trek. And now a couple of things to note happen on this trip. One, a near-death experience convinces Crowley that he's still need, he's still needed in this world. Uh, he's riding his horse and he falls down a ravine. Or no, he falls down a ravine, which should have killed him, but he comes out unscathed. Because he hit the thorn bush, probably? No, there was no thorn bush. This is Aww. a different part. Uh, Did he land on the horse? I, I don't know, but the horse didn't come back up. Crowley did. So... He is thinking, all right, that well, horse on the way down. He's like, I've survived two major things now. I think I can uh, 
be pretty sure that somebody wants me here. His life flashed before his eyes, and it was just the worst thing anybody had ever seen. He's like, oh, he, pro- he was probably no. enjoying himself a whole bunch up to this point. <laughs> just um, falling down the cliff, masturbating. The second thing is uh, the Chinese porters he hired made off with his horse one morning, um, just took it and started riding. And uh, they were just riding ahead. He caught up to him and pulled the culprit off of his horse threw him into some thorn bushes, and as each additional porter passed, he whips the man in the thorn bushes for his disrespect. And he writes in his diary later that he did actually get some sort of sadistic charge out of this, and he did kind of enjoy it. Because one of the reasons that the dudes on the mountaineering trip were upset with him was that he hit one of the other porters with an ice pick. He hit him with an ice pick? Yeah, flapped him right across the side of the face. Does that even hurt if it doesn't stab you? I don't know, but it probably hurts a lot. Little red mark? But yeah, just because the guy was being disrespectful. So, so that's why he was he was showing everybody else. Yeah, he had he to take whip them. That's the thing is that he has to be the leader. And this is the only way he knows how to get respect as a leader is to be the toughest guy willing to do those things. Even though he's not. He just, <laughs> he just kind of did that. How, oh. how tall was he? Actually, I don't know. I assume small. You're looking I for I mean, Napoleon was... syndrome? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's like, it's 1875 England, so I mean, the tallest dude was probably 5'6". He's just women. He's like, I will be the best. Wait, hold on. Let me get down. One of the third things that happened was Crowley really didn't trust his porter, and he decides to attempt a ritual, uh, the one that he'd been attempting in the Bolskin house to invoke his guardian spirit yet again. He feels he accomplishes it on this trip, so he feels like he is protected in a sort of way. And the fourth thing is that Crowley calls off his trek across China, and he heads to Vietnam. As he's leaving, uh, one of the porters had disrespected his wife, so as he's leaving, he refuses to pay the whole sum. He hands the, the head guy part of the money and says, minus fees for being rude or some shit like that and the guy complains and all the porters pick up rocks like they're gonna throw him and he pulls out this giant 400 winchester and boom shoots it into the air tells his man to go untie the boat and not a single person threw a rock nothing happens just hops back in the boat and they start laughing about it as they pedal down the river unrope the shiv yeah and so he uh decides skiv sorry so he kind of at this point once they get to vietnam uh, he basically abandons his wife and daughter and heads to Shanghai to meet his mistress that he's been astral projecting with. Now, he doesn't really just abandon his wife and daughter. He does tell them that they're to travel back through India and head back to England that way while he goes through China, Japan, to America, across America, where he's going to try and get more support in New York for a mountaineering trip. And then he's going to head back to Scotland to meet them. So it wasn't that he was just like, all right, see you later, guys. He was kind of giving them a plan. So what exactly is astral projecting? And how did it even exist before like people could communicate across the world in a rapid form? Astral projecting is taking yourself out of your body onto another plane where you can move and communicate with spirits or see things that are happening at the same time from where you're at in this instance he was astral projected himself into the body of a certain god and was speaking to another woman who he had met a while ago and they were doing this stuff to sort of get together or some shit like that it was literally like online dating before it was yeah thing it was like the like, old i am a god it's like magicians online dating Crowley continues way back to Scotland through through Japan and across America, finally returning home. 
near the end of 1906. That's when he found out about the death of his daughter in Vietnam. She died of, uh, I believe it was malaria, but they blamed it on, he blamed it on an unwashed nipple on a baby Niet's bottle. Crowley blames the poor paternal, poor parental involvement on the part of Rose, and his friend Alan writes that she has fallen into a fit of alcoholism and he should not have another child with her. Doesn't it seem that poor parental involvement on the part of Rose, but he's not even there. Yeah. That's he's backs backwards. Yeah. It was funny that you said paternal yeah, that, involvement, because I was like, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Crowley was blaming himself. Well, Rose was actually pregnant again, and upon her return to Scotland, her and Crowley grieved together and brought their new daughter into this world. So all of this happened in a span of like nine months or less, theoretically? Basically, yeah. I mean, it's it's not. It was like a five month journey across the uh, China for him, or so she was like to... four, like a few couple months pregnant when he left her. Even? Oh yeah, yeah, she oh was pregnant God. when he left her. So it is his. Oh, it's definitely his. Okay. Yeah. By 1907, Crowley had moved to London and left his daughter with the ever more drunk Rose. Um, she was having a hard time dealing with her grill, her guilt, and she drank all the time. At this point, I think they called her Rose. <laughs> Now, he, he started gaining some followers and just also fucking around on poor Rose while she was taking care of their child in the depths of extreme alcoholism. So basically, there was no one there to take care of the child except for Gerald, her brother, who had had his sister basically stolen from him by Crowley. He hates Crowley, despises the man, thinks he's a gigantic ass, which at this point, I agree with him. Okay. All right. And now he's taking care of his kid. Yeah, basically, yeah. And what's crazy is uh, later on, actually, he his daughter's 14, and he runs across his friend Gerald in Paris with his 14-year-old daughter, and she does not recognize him at all. But he was being a good guardian to her? Oh, yeah. No, he Gerald okay. was really good to her, took care of her like it was his own daughter, loved her, cared for her, took her to the best schools, did all the things that should have been done for her. It's crazy that he probably just like... He had a pretty crazy impact on a lot of people, but really none on his daughter. Right. Now, life again changes for Crowley when he meets a young man at his alma mater, Victor Newberg. Upon meeting him, Crowley acknowledged the boy's ability for magic and took him on as a student to show him how to reach his true magical potential. It is definitely one thing to believe that you can do magic and, like, you know, you're really involved and committed, but it's a whole nother thing to be tricked by someone else who's doing the same thing as you. Yeah. It's really odd to me. He, well, I believe that Crowley has an eye for people that are ready to be preyed upon. Like any predator, he, he sees someone who's, this his kid, poor kid had like a bent back. He was not the most attractive. He was kind of super nerdy. And in walks Crowley and sees that and says, hmm, I see the magical potential in you and automatically bonds himself to this kid. Like, so by magical potential, he's easily manipulated Quasimodo-looking motherfucker. Basically, yeah. Now, I feel bad for this guy, basically, for the rest of the story, but I think we're going to go ahead and uh, end it here for this week. I think we're going to have to turn this into a two-parter. Two-parter this is going to become. This story has definitely taken on a little bit more than we expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, the book on this is As Long As My Arm. There is still so much to the story. We haven't even gotten into the really weird shit. This is just him beginning to realize his own potential as a quote-unquote leader. And 
Oh man, does it get worse. I'm just so. beginning to realize now that we've got a good physical description of Newberg, what kind of strange attractions uh, Crawley has for us in the next episode. Oh yeah, you're going to hear some fun stuff. You're going to hear some sad stuff. You're going to learn why he became the wickedest man in the world. Uh, he definitely has some non-hang-ups when it comes to sex i don't know <laughs> it's the opposite yeah, it's of a the hang opposite up. of a hang-up he's very open he's but kinky. Uh, he's kinky yeah heller he's, kinky he's I would... he's past kinky he he's he borderlines on depraved most of the time but... i actually think depraved is a pretty good way to describe what uh we're going to talk about next week so and next week i kind of want to have a little discussion with people about uh the differences in satanism and what he's doing we can go into the what you read about the book of thoughts uh you can go more oh, into Mike the Tyson's grimoires. Book. Yeah, Mike Tyson's favorite book. Thoth, it's just about my pizza Thoth. <laughs> I got a book I wrote all about Thoth. You love my pasta Thoth, my Alfredo Thoth. Do you guys want me to do like a review of Levian Satanism and traditional Satanism? Yeah, if you would, if you want to actually go into like how they kind of a... tie in and stuff like that, that'd be that'd be fun too. Because there are a lot of tie-ins. There's a lot of like people pulling from Crowley, but not really fully having the same like belief and shit in it so and you could do a review on uh how good rory is at hosting oh yeah and guess what this guy is all about germany and the nazis we'll get into that next week i'm super excited yes for you that guys. means i get to do accents next week sure i get time to work on them i'll get you guys some good accents coming next week but uh all right guys i had fun um hopefully you come back for next week because it's gonna get a lot creepier a lot weirder a lot darker and, you know, we're going to go into what we refer to as, like, Crowley being Crowley, like, at his most Crowley. So Would for most of you, we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> Would you say that Crowley is worth worse or Albert, Albert Fish? Fish. Okay, so... Because those are both people you could describe as depraved. Oh, yeah. Uh, Albert Fish took it to a different uh, extreme, but as we'll get into next week... So does Crowley to a point where he, he develops weird little games and things, monikers to remember parts of his law and stuff like that. It's really weird. It's fun. We'll talk about it next week, guys. Hope to see you then. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at Four Corners Crime. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Also, F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for an episode or to get your free sticker from our merch store. Just enter the code Bingo Bango at checkout. We'll ship your sticker out 100% free. So just be ready for next week. There is some depravity coming your way and we will be getting prepped for it. Oh yeah. Prepping for depravity. Woohoo! All right, guys, we'll see you next week. See ya. Eat shit, motherfuckers. Oh, come on. That was a good one. All right. (laughs)